Sit Rap on BFBS with Kate Chabot. Tony Blair tells SITREP why British forces are not just about budgets. The armed forces is more than about the armed forces. For me, it's an essential part of what makes this country what it is. That 2% defence argument, could it be wrong? Power is not only measured uh, in one number. And taking the war against IS personally, why some ex-soldiers want a piece of the action. Tomorrow, politicians and military gather at St Paul's Cathedral in London for a service of commemoration of the war in Afghanistan. Yet during that time, the public debate in the United Kingdom was more often on the circumstances that took us to war in Iraq in 2003. I've been talking to the man who, as Prime Minister, controversially committed British troops to more than 10 years of conflict, Tony Blair. But first, I asked him about Afghanistan and tomorrow's service. I think it's extraordinary appropriate and, and right that we, we show our respect and our admiration uh, for what our armed forces did in Afghanistan, our gratitude for their, their sacrifice, uh, our sadness at, um, at those who lost their lives or who suffered life-changing injuries, and to, to say whatever the politics of, of it all, the country is united behind support for our armed forces, support for what they do, and and support for their, their extraordinary spirit and commitment. Are you surprised at how big the campaign begat, became? Because it was a 13-year campaign in the end. I think um, the answer is yes. I think post 9-11, in the immediate aftermath of that terrible attack in, in New York where thousands of people lost their lives, I think back then we really couldn't foresee how long these campaigns were going to be. But I think now we, we can see this for, for what it is, which is a very long generational struggle. Um, it's a completely different type of warfare. It's unconventional, it's asymmetric, uh, it's dirty, it's difficult. It requires um, an immense amount of staying power and also an understanding that you don't get victory or, or, or defeat in a, in a conventional way. This isn't like the war that my father fought in, or the wars of previous generations where it would be two large countries fighting together. This is a completely different type of combat, and we've got to prepare ourselves for this for the future, I think. More than 450 British personnel lost their lives in the war in Afghanistan, and you had to write letters to some of their families. That must have been incredibly difficult. Did you ever question the war during that time? I think I, I always felt that it was right and justified that we were there in Afghanistan, that we were fighting both to remove the Taliban and then to try and stabilize the country. But, you know, the, the, there's nothing that's really possible to say that can provide true consolation for, for the family of, of someone who's lost their life. And even if you, and I can say, I, I think the, the cause was a justified one, you know, their loved one's not coming back. And so, I understand completely the feelings and sometimes the very mixed feelings, but, but I, I do believe for all of those families, whether they agree with, with the political decision or don't agree with it, they feel an immense amount of pride in, in, in what these young men and women did, and, um, and nothing will ever change that. Would you do anything differently? Look, I think when you, you look back, there are lots of things you might 
do differently, but it's in the nature of, of warfare that you, you're learning and adjusting as, you, as you're going. And I think you know, the, the, biggest, um, the biggest failure of understanding, as it were, that I think you can go back in September 2001 and then fast forward to today, the biggest failure of understanding then was to, to realize how deep the roots of this um, extremist Islamism uh, are how um, much it's going to be dealt with over a long period of time. And I think the, the, the difficult challenge for us as a country then and today is what do you do? I mean, are you, are you prepared for that long haul? Are you prepared to commit for the long haul? And this is very difficult because your public opinion gets uh, fatigued very quickly with the combat. There is the, the ghastly... Uh, um, grief of, of losing forces in battle. These are really, really hard challenges for us, but I think they are big challenges we have to face up to. When you talk about being in it for the long <coughs> haul, and, and you look at the situation in Afghanistan, originally the intention was to go in there and stop al-Qaeda getting a stronghold in the country. Look at the situation today, and you have Islamists trying to get back into Afghanistan and establish themselves there. Right. Have international troops left too soon? This is eight years after I've left office, so I'm very, you know, very reluctant because I know how difficult uh, the job of being prime minister and being a leader in these circumstances is. Must have an opinion. Um, Come on. No, I, I don't. I'm not competent to say it's too soon or not. What what I would say is that I hope the decision is being taken on the grounds of what is right for the situation and not on the grounds of what is most easy to do. So. You know, I, as I say, I don't, you know, I, I'm not in a position where I can sit down with the generals now and discuss what the right or wrong um, circumstances are for, for us to withdraw. But I do think it's important we realise this battle against this extremism, it's going to go on for a very long time. And, you know, you look at Afghanistan today and a lot of people will say, well, what, what, what was it all for? You know, was it a waste? It's really important, I think, the country understands, not, not just the armed forces, because I think they kind of understand better. You know, if you look back in 2001 and then see Afghanistan today, yes, for all the challenges, you know, back in 2002 there were 900,000 Afghan children in school, virtually all boys. Today there's 8 million, a third of them girls. The economy has grown almost 10% a year over this past period of time. The life expectancy is 20 years more today than it was back then. And we have a government that, for all its imperfections and challenges, was elected by the people and is working with us. So I think it's important we don't, you know, we, we, we don't misunderstand either the huge gains that have been there. But the fact is, we're going to be fighting this problem for a long time. Is it an unintended consequence of the war in Afghanistan and perhaps Iraq and other conflicts that today our government is less inclined to intervene. When you look at the fight against Islamic State now, it's conducted largely from the air. Can we do it without boots on the ground? You can't do it without boots on the ground. No, they don't necessarily have to be our, our boots, although you know, it's important, I think, always to understand that our armed forces, the Americans and the British, are the most capable, partly because of what we've gone through, of really fighting these people. But... I understand that the, the, the political difficulty today as a result of Afghanistan and Iraq, but I think we've, we've also got to ask ourselves this question. Is that difficulty um, 
a result of the way those campaigns were conducted? Or is that difficulty inherent in the problem we're dealing with? And what do you think the answer is? I think the answer is it's inherent in the problem we're dealing with. Okay. In other words, whether it's fighting Islamic State that rebuilt itself in Syria, came back over and now causing this trouble in Iraq, and now there's a fight there, whether it's fighting Boko Haram in Nigeria, Al-Shabaab in Somalia, these different groups in, in Libya and Yemen and so on, if you're fighting these types of terrorists that are, I'm afraid, armed and financed pretty well and prepared to kill without mercy and die without regret themselves, it's a tough fight. So I think the problems are inherent in the situation. So how do you fight it? You fight it by understanding that you're going to have to commit and commit over a long period and then you've got to deal with commit, the... Commit what? Commit, if necessary, armed forces, but certainly commit to working with others. And the great advantage today, by the way, as opposed to back in 2001, is that as a result of all the changes that are undergoing in the region, the Middle East, and I'm in the Middle East probably twice a month now, you know, there are allies that can fight with us today. That's a big difference and a very positive difference. But you've then got to deal with the root cause of this, which in my view is, and this is a bigger topic obviously, is the education of large numbers of young children to a view of the world that is closed-minded and, and warped. Do, do you think at the moment, though, we're getting the strategy right on tackling Islamic State and Islamist militancy? Um, I think we have not yet understood the depth of this problem, the scale of it, and the need for a comprehensive strategy to deal with it. And, you know, this is something I spend literally the largest part of my time studying and, and looking at. And the fact is, it's not just Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. And the, these things hit our headlines when there's these terrible uh, beheadings and killings of, of Western hostages, or, you know, when the, the Christian cops were killed in, in, in Libya a short time ago. But it's happening day in, day out. There are thousands of people losing their lives every few weeks. And I think if you want to deal with it properly, you've got to realize there are two elements to it. One is to go wherever they are and fight them, because they've got to know that they're going to be fought against. And the second is you've got to deal with this, what, what I call the incubation of this problem, through the teaching in formal and informal education systems around the world. And it's around the world. It's not just in the Middle East. It's actually even in Europe. You, you mentioned earlier when, when the campaign in Afghanistan began, there was perhaps, if anything, to criticise, a sort of lack of understanding about how deep the roots went in Islamist extremism. Uh, why was there that lack of understanding? Because I don't think we'd really confronted this before in a, in, a, in a big way. I mean, if you think of September the 11th, I mean, prior to September 2001, who, who'd really heard of the Taliban? I mean, who'd really heard of Al-Qaeda? I mean, actually, they had been committing terrorist attacks, but they had been relatively um, isolated incidents. What happened in Afghanistan, and this is, of course, the great risk of what's happening in, in Syria and Iraq and Libya and Yemen and elsewhere today, what happened in Afghanistan was that a country effectively became a training camp for the, this terrorist organization, and then they were able to come and commit this atrocity in New York, I mean, literally in the heart of America. Are you more worried about Russia or Islamist extremism? That is a really good question. And one of the things that, that I learned when I was Prime Minister is that it would be very convenient if the problems 
came sequentially, hmm. uh, but they don't. And the truth is we should be worried about both. And on defence spending, obviously an extremely hot topic at the moment. How much of a mistake do you think it would be if Britain spent less than 2% of GDP on defence? Well, again, I, I, I know how difficult it is when you're in government and you're, you're trying to balance the books and we've been through very difficult economic circumstances. But let me just say this in a, in a, in a general way about the armed forces. And I, I think this is a big debate we need to have in this country. In my view, our armed forces are a major part of projecting British power and influence. Right? And, you know, okay, Britain is not the same country in world terms as it was when my father was born, that's true, but it's still an important player in the world. It's still a country with a, a, not just an amazing history, but great relationships and an enormous amount of respect around the world. Now, our armed forces are part of what makes us Britain. Right? They're part of what makes us a country that carries some weight and influence in the world. So all I would say, without getting into the details of you know, how you work out the budget, is the armed forces is more than about the armed forces, for me. It's an essential part of what makes this country what it is. To turn back to the commemorations, um, when you're sitting in St Paul's Cathedral, what will you be thinking? I'll be thinking of young men and women who went out there um, to liberate a country from terrorism, to help that country rebuild itself, to give that country for the first time in its history the chance to elect its own government properly. And I'll be thinking of their sacrifice and I'll be thinking what an extraordinary group of young people they, they were. To be willing to do that, to be able to do it, and to do it knowing that they may pay for that work with their own lives. And I don't, you know, one of the reasons why, whatever, as I say, whatever people say about political leaders like, like me, I mean, I. You know, when I was Prime Minister and dealing with the armed forces, it was, however difficult any part of the decision-making was and being Prime Minister, when I used to meet them and talk with them and be with them, it always lifted my spirits. That was the former Prime Minister, Tony Blair. Well, listening to that is BFBS's defence analyst, Christopher Lee, and from the Royal United Services Institute, Professor Malcolm Chalmers, who's RUSI's Director of UK Defence Policy Studies. Hello to both of you. Uh, Professor Chalmers, to you first of all, what do you think of what you just heard? Well, I think it was uh, rather impressive, actually, and quite a, a, a great panoramic view on the events of the the last decade. Uh, what I would add to it is, first of all, I think uh, Mr. Blair was, was right to emphasise that while we need boots on the ground, they don't always have to be our boots. In fact, I think I would go further, and this is illustrated in Iraq today, that having local boots on the ground is absolutely essential to getting a solution that a solution can't be imposed from abroad. But our armed forces have a very important role in the future to support uh, those who are uh, fighting uh, for stable government against all the problems that they confront. I think the second point I would make is that uh, the problems we confront across the greater Middle East uh, reflect themselves in, in a problem of terrorism and Islamic extremism, but they go wider than that. In Syria, for example, uh, the sort of repression 
that we've seen from President Assad has been a breeder of terrorism. So to solve the problem of terrorism, you have to address a wider set of governance issues. Again, in Nigeria, the problems of Boko Haram in northeastern Nigeria were allowed to incubate because of the terrible corruption and, uh, and poor governance of the Nigerian state in Abuja. So in a way, the challenge is even bigger than Tony Blair uh, mm. suggests and, and actually under, underlines his basic uh, thesis that this is a, a long-term commitment for us all. A long-term commitment and and Christopher Lee, um, he didn't anticipate that though with Afghanistan. What do you think of his explanations about that? I mean he said for example that nobody had ever heard of uh, Taliban before 9-11 or whatever he was implying which is absolute nonsense of course everybody you know people who actually have to do the analysis that present to him they had and also uh, you you even take to the next stage and say who started to kick out the Russians uh, or the Soviet trips as then they were uh, from Afghanistan in the first place, and that's where all the threat lectures were coming from, from Afghanistan. I quite, it's interesting, and Malcolm's picked this up, about um, you don't necessarily have to put local uh, or, or regional boots on the ground, um, or, or American boots or, or British boots. The point is, most solutions are regional solutions, and we see that, for example, in Assad, uh, with Assad Syria at the moment, which is the fourth year this weekend of it of that of starting, and with Boko Haram, which this week has signed up for IS as to be a client state of, uh, mm. of, of IS. But it's, I think, the most important bit is when he says we didn't know what we were getting into. In other words, time and time again we've been into wars, not just local situations, where the intelligence wasn't good enough, or a prime minister doesn't actually have time to think through what information is actually sometimes brought before him. Uh, We live in different times from the days that Churchill could think sort of ten years ahead and say, well, I think we ought to guard against this or that. Gentlemen, stay with us. This is BFBS. Sit rep. The Defence Secretary, Michael Fallon, is denying that he's engaged in a damage limitation exercise in Washington, where he's held his first talks with the new US Defence Secretary, Ashton Carter. Simon Marks reports from Washington. Michael Fallon's first port of call was a Washington think tank, the Centre for Strategic and International Studies. He told a breakfast meeting that Britain remains America's indispensable ally, and he urged solidarity in the face of threats from Islamic State and others. Let me assure you that the United Kingdom, like the United States, has no intention of lowering its guard. We should... Play now to our strengths, those values we share that have stood the test of time. Questions about Britain's ability to deliver on its alliance commitments dogged Mr Fallon's footsteps here. On Tuesday, America's ambassador to the United Nations, Samantha Power, became the latest US official to question the readiness of Britain and other European countries to meet the challenges the alliance faces. She spoke on BBC Radio 4. I am not coming to Europe to tell any single country how much to spend or or where to spend it, but I am observing that there is a gap between the collective security needs that we all have and the resources that we are bringing to bear. Mr Fallon argued the ambassador, in fact, called Britain's contributions exceptional. He said that ongoing joint exercises, including the recent announcement of troop deployments in the Baltic, prove that Britain is still more than capable of meeting its commitments. Make no mistake here. We're after the same thing together. You want Europe to do more to pay its way in defence. So do we. 
And that was the message that he took to the Pentagon, where an honor guard greeted him for his first meeting with America's new defense secretary, Ashton Carter. But if the Americans pressed him in private to make sure that Britain continues spending more than 2% of its GDP on defense, in public, Secretary Carter resisted an invitation to pile on. Power is not only measured uh, in one number. One of the things that we have valued for a long time in the UK military is the ability to act independently. We need that because we need as many kindred countries in the world as we can. And Mr Fallon sidestepped the 2% issue. He would only say that he had assured the Americans that Britain is still up to the mark. All of us uh, face uh, budget constraints. Uh, these aren't unique to any uh, particular country. We still have that uh, global reach and and are able to uh, support our allies where they're needed. On several occasions here, the Secretary of State gave voice to the view that Britain can still field a division of troops, something he said underscores the special nature of the UK's alliance with Washington. But the fact that he had to keep saying it equally showed how often he faced quizzical questions about the scale and scope of Britain's modern-day military capabilities. For CITREP, I'm Simon Marks in Washington. Well, the US Defence Secretary Ashton Carter said there in Simon's report, power is not only measured in one number. So why is everybody getting obsessed with that 2%? Professor Malcolm Chalmers from the Royal United Services Institute is with us still. Uh, what do you think, uh, Malcolm? 2% of GDP is just a guideline from NATO, isn't it? It is, and the vast majority of European countries uh, don't meet that guideline at present and aren't likely to do so. Unfortunately, uh, this commitment was reaffirmed at a summit last year in Wales, which uh, our Prime Minister Why, why unfortunately? It's unfortunate because even when that commitment was made, uh, we weren't changing our defence plans uh, to ensure we could meet it. So uh, even from the beginning of this decade, we've had planning assumptions for defence, which have assumed a rate of growth in defence spending after next year, which would be enough to meet the 2% target. So I think we could have been more honest last year in terms of what was likely to happen. Christopher. Only two countries in NATO, and that's Estonia and the United States, re, uh, will probably get 2% this, this coming year. The United States, uh, well over two, uh, 2%. The United Kingdom, 1.88%. Uh, Some countries like well, Italy, Hungary, uh, won't be making any increases at all. Now, let's put it in some perspective. Just supposing you, you say, right, because of our defence policy and our commitments, we need X number of tanks, X number of ships, X number of aircraft, X number of people to operate them. And the total bill comes to whatever it comes to. You can then say, well, that's 2% of our, uh, our GDP. That's all right then. Mm. And that's all it is. You've got to decide what comes to what. Now, the Americans <laughs> operate 11 aircraft carrier battle groups, for example. They're going to be spending a tad more than we are. And so to the idea of poking at the United Kingdom and say, look, you're not spending enough. What you have to decide is what you want to spend it on. And then if you haven't got it, 
don't you don't spend it. Get away from this 2% GDP because it's meaningless in, in terms of defence spending. Me- meaningless. Professor Malcolm Chalmers, when people are arguing for it, they, they quote the kind of threats that the UK is facing these days, uh, likes of Rory Stewart from the Defence Select Committee talking about Syria, Iraq, Libya, Yemen, Somalia, and Russia, of course. I mean, how big a threat are these things to UK security? Well, all the things that you've mentioned are threats that we confront along with our NATO allies. None of them are things which the UK does itself. So the question is, how do we share the burden with our allies of confronting all those different risks? And that's why it is relevant uh, that when we are going into a defence review this year, we ask about how any adjustments we are making, any cuts we're making are perceived by our allies because we can't leave everything to the Americans to do. But I think Christopher is absolutely right. In the end, the American perception of what we're doing will depend on whether we're willing to deploy and whether we're able to deploy capable forces uh, to alliance missions to confront whether it's Russia, uh, deterrent guarantees for these Europeans or indeed deploying into uh, Syria and Iraq. If we're not prepared to deploy our forces or if we don't have the forces to deploy, then uh, numbers uh, are not relevant. All right, Professor Malcolm Chalmers from the Royal United Services Institute, thank you for your time today. The Foreign Secretary has warned this week that anyone including ex-service personnel who joined the fight against Islamic State in places like Iraq or Syria could face prosecution on their return. It follows a number of cases where veterans have either gone abroad to fight IS or expressed their desire to do so. Well, I'm joined by two former army officers, both now working as reporters here at BFBS, Tony Harris and James Banks. Hello to both of you. Um, Tony, why do you think some veterans are thinking about doing this? I think there's been a number of number of issues. You've got to bear in mind that they've been fighting for the last 15 years almost. And one of the things we inculcate in training is a sense of moral value. Now, how far down that stretches the tree and how many soldiers would realistically think they're fighting for something, fighting for a value, is debatable. I'm sure many of the mm. listeners will, will think that. Um, I think a lot of time we've seen people fixate on the idea and very real idea that you want to help someone who cannot help themselves and you're that last line of defence and a lot of the guys and girls will will be looking at, at Kurdistan uh, sorry at, at the Kurdish Peshmerga and Iraq and thinking actually this is this is a very honourable and, and real reason that I want to go and fight James Banks um, I agree with you Tony to a certain extent that there is that, that moral side of things but also combat in its, <laughs> is quite addictive I think a lot of people come back from conflicts they've been in, in, in firefights they've been in co- operations of combat and actually they come back and they face the real world and they no longer face that excitement. Not, not addictive for everyone. Look at you, you two, case in point. Well, exactly. My life is now very dull compared to what it used to be like. <laughs> um, but a lot of those people do come back and they are chasing that excitement. They're chasing that thrill again. And I think sometimes if they come back, come back to the civilian world, they leave the army, um, they face a, a normal nine-to-five job like a lot of people, everyone else normally has, and then perhaps they combine this with, as you say, that moral piece mm. and then think, well, hang on, Christopher, just very briefly, do you think we'll ever see a day where a former British service person comes back from fighting against IS actually ends up in court? I'd love to be the lawyer that was represented him because you make an absolute fortune. There's hardly any chance that the foreign sector or any other or, or the law officers could get this through. We just add one thing. You talk about these two guys got commissions, different attitudes. A lot of people ask them why they joined the army in the first place, ask them why they're finding it hard to sit down in Civvy Street. For the past hundred years... Guys that have been in the services, especially other ranks, 
mm. have said, this is not enough. I can't even hold down a job. I'm going to do what I want to do. Let's just uh, look ahead uh, briefly to tomorrow, to events at St Paul's Cathedral and this commemorative service uh, for the 13 years in Afghanistan. Tony, you, you'll be there, won't you? Um, yes, yeah. We'll how, how important do you think it is to mark this? I think it's really important. I think it's important for the families. I think it's very important for the service personnel who've been involved. Um, and I, I think there's going to be a lot of different emotional um, qualities being brought to it, and not least, I hope that the politicians get a chance to reflect on the cost of their actions and their decisions. And it's an opportunity as well for uh, speaking to Kerry Ashworth, the mother of um, Lance Corporal James Ashworth, who won a Victoria Cross. She very much hoped it was going to be an opportunity for the nation mm. to collectively say thank you for her son's sacrifice and her sacrifice. James, do you think after tomorrow it will really be drawing a line under the conflict in Afghanistan? Actually, the public perception will move away onto something completely different. Uh, I, I think it, it probably will. I think that's probably the, the, why they've, Je they've done this. You're shaking your head, Christopher. No, I listen. think it will for the, for the public, and I think outwardly for the Ministry of Defence, outwardly for the government, they will be using this, I imagine, to draw that line. But mm. clearly for the families then that is a line that will never never be drawn. The Chilcot report is on, on Iraq is still to report. When that's reported, there will be another report on Afghanistan, and this will go on, and it will go on in the public mind as well. We will not go on any longer today. Uh, that's it for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter, and you can follow us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP, or download the, download the podcast from iTunes. We're back at the same time next week. But for now, from me, Kate Chibber, Thanks for listening and bye-bye. News, news, sport, sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.